Well, before uh, we get to our last session, I want to just say a few things. And one is uh, Ariel and I really have enjoyed uh, our time with you guys. Uh, it has been a real blessing to us. Uh, your hospitality and uh, your just your Christian friendliness has been a real blessing. And so, uh, thank the Tuckers for having us over the first night, and uh, Vince and Connie, thank you, and uh, Joshua and Dana, have been great, and uh, it's, it's wonderful because no matter where you go in the world, you realize God has people there, and uh, Jesus said that if, um, if we follow Him, that in this life we'll have houses and, and family, and expands, and now we have, now we have houses in Kelowna. Yeah, so, um, anyway, it's been a great joy to be here, and I'm really glad, even though she's she got lost, but our cabin's just right there, so I don't know where she is, but um, it was really nice to have Ariel uh, here with me, too. And uh, John actually asked me if I would just share just a, a couple of minutes about uh, Reformed Baptist Seminary. So, Reformed Baptist Seminary is... Um, is sort of a, a, a hybrid uh, seminary approach. Most of our classes are uh, basically distance learning. So you take classes and you can either listen to the audios or watch the videos. But then we also offer uh, modular courses. And uh, some of those modular courses uh, over the last number of years have been really, really uh, outstanding. Uh, I've served on the board for Reform Baptist Seminary for the last number of years and uh, they're doing a lot of um, revising of the classes. Uh, some of the early ones were done on, on, recorded on VHS, and so they're sort of dated. So we're updating those. And uh, there, there are a couple of programs. One is called the Marrow Program, which is basically 32 units of systematic theology. And uh, it is, I, I mean, I think the material is outstanding. The thing about... Uh, the program. There's also an MDiv program, and then there's also um, uh, a Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling. And the thing that I like about the program is that it is uh, focused on the local church. So your pastor is your mentor. Okay? Um, it's not just some, you know, somebody that's grading papers far away. There's there's somebody that is a mentor who not only proctors your exams, but hopefully interacts with you on the material. And uh, it's incredibly affordable. And so if you're, uh, you know, if you're interested, we have uh, a website. You can listen to some of the lectures. There, we've been doing uh, covenant theology seminars uh, for the last year or so, and I think there's about eight or ten lectures on covenant theology. I've done some. Dr. Bob Gonzalez has done some. Uh, and so you can go and listen and... Uh, you can also audit courses, and this isn't a pitch to get support, but if churches give a certain amount of support to Reformed Baptist Seminary, then any member of that church actually can attend, take classes, do any program uh, tuition-free. So anyway, that's my pitch, and uh, thanks for giving me a, a chance to talk about it. All right. I want to say Josh was very good at, at, at anticipating what is going to be a good text to read, okay, in the call to worship. And so uh, what I'd like you to do is turn back fairly close to where he read, and that is in Hebrews chapter 8. We read this yesterday, but I want to read it one more time, starting at verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers 
on the day I, when I took them out by the hand and to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and your plan to us in your word. And we pray, Father, that as we bring things to a close today, that you would help us to, to sort of tie together some of the loose ends and give us a clarity, Lord. But we pray not just for understanding, for understanding's sake. We pray, Father, that you would uh, really enlarge our hearts with wonder and love and praise for all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And so we pray that he would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, it should be clear by now, at least I would hope that it would be clear by now, that when we talk about the covenant of grace, what we're talking about is the new covenant itself. The covenant of grace is the new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. In fact, I'd like to read, I haven't read too much from the confession, but I'd like to read chapter 7, paragraph 3, just a little section of this. So this covenant, talking about the covenant of grace, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. Then the confession goes on and it says this, this covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Now, when we get to the new covenant, we've already said some of this, but let me just review very quickly. So that new covenant promise, or if you prefer the, the, the covenant of grace, it is promised in Genesis 3.15, all right? And, and I made a big deal about the difference between it being promised and it being established, all right? So then, what the confession says, and I, and I think this is just consistent with biblical theology, is that that promise of the gospel, that promise of the new covenant, ends up being progressively revealed through the scriptures. So that promise of the gospel is progressively revealed through the covenants. Okay? So in fact, Paul could talk about, in Ephesians 2.12, he could talk about the covenants, plural, of promise. Right? So there's one promise, and it's revealed through these different covenants. But the promise is also uh, progressively revealed through the promised seed. So we go from the seed of the woman to the seed of Abraham. By the way, it continues to narrow, doesn't it? Then it goes, so then uh, Genesis 49.10 is going to be from the tribe of Judah. And then by the time you get to David, it's going to be a son of David. And so you have this narrowing of the promise of the seed. But you also have the promise being progressively revealed through types and shadows. Right? And of course, a type is, is a pattern that has a trajectory to it. So Adam, for instance, was a type, and we know this actually because Paul says explicitly that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Um, and so there was a trajectory. So there was the federal head, Adam, of the human race, who then was a type, a pattern of him who was to come, that is Christ, the federal head of his chosen race. And so you have uh, institutions, you have um, the institution of the priesthood, the institution of the sacrifices, you have persons, right? I mean, how can you not see Christ foreshadowed in the offering of Isaac? Or Christ foreshadowed in 
in uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz, and, and Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, right? And the thing is, is that it's not just that you have this promise being progressively revealed maybe every once in a while. Jesus actually says in Luke 24 that the scriptures spoke concerning him. And, and when he starts to show the disciples on the road to Emmaus this, it says, beginning with Moses, and all the Psalms, and all the prophets. In other words, the entirety of the New Te or Old Testament is actually pointing through types and shadows uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the covenant of grace uh, uh, finally um, uh, comes to its uh, fruition, it is in the New Covenant. And so, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, the, the idea of one substance and different administration, that model really seems to fail, I think. And it seems to fail because what it ends up doing is it ends up flatlining. And I think the best way to understand the progression of the covenants is that you look at each covenant in its biblical context on its own terms as it actually informs us and helps the promise, as it were, be progressively revealed. And so, when the new covenant comes, it's not just simply a renewed covenant, but it is actually the final fulfillment of what God had promised all along. Now, that brings up something that we should, should note quickly, and that is that all of the, all of the um, saving elements of the new covenant even though the new covenant itself is not formally inaugurated until Christ comes the elements of the new covenant are in fact operative under the uh, during the old testament in other words it's not as if the holy spirit only starts working when Jesus comes it's not that there were different ways that people were saved until Jesus came and so salvation has always been by grace through faith and that's that way of salvation is is unchanging and so basically Old Testament saints were saved by faith in a sense by looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise we're saved by looking back on the fulfillment of the promise now one thing that we haven't really talked very much about is where this covenant of grace or new covenant actually flows from. The covenant of grace flows from the covenant of redemption. Okay? And I don't remember if I mentioned the covenant of redemption or not at all, but um, when we talk about the covenant of redemption, we're talking about, here, here's, our, here's our terms that we're going to use, a pre-temporal intra-trinitarian covenant so pre-temporal that is before time okay in eternity past intra-trinitarian that means within the members of the trinity and so the um, sometimes this is called the covenant of peace sometimes the covenant of redemption and so in it it is trinitarian and you know you know it's trinitarian just read the new testament think about because when we talk about the covenant of redemption, we're talking about God's eternal plan to save His people. Think about Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Okay? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. You have the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. You have the Son who redeemed us through His blood... And you have the Spirit who has been given to us as a seal for our salvation. Right? So you, by the way, these Trinitarian passages are everywhere in the Bible. If you just, just have your eyes open. I often thought that, uh, I, I drive a, a Toyota Tundra. When I got my Tundra in 2014, yeah, everybody's like, yeah, good truck, good truck. Um, <laughs> You know, what, you know what happens when you start driving a particular car? 
You start to see them everywhere. You're like, man, everybody went out and bought one the same time I did. No, actually, you just become more aware of it. And in a sense, that's what it's like seeing the Trinity in the Scriptures, right? You start, you, you just, you see it one place and all of a sudden you're awakened to it. And so the plan of redemption is Trinitarian, right? And so you have this, this eternal or pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian arrangement. And so what does that arrangement look like? Well, in that arrangement, Christ has been appointed as the federal head of his people. We've already talked about that. But the next part is that the Father gives the elect to His Son as a gift. So if, if you, again, are reading your Bible and reading carefully, reading slowly, you'll read things like this. All whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. All whom the Father has given to me, I will raise up on the last day, and I will lose none. Or, repeatedly, by the way, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, this phrase, all whom the Father's given to me, all whom the Father's given to me, all whom the Father has given to me. And so there is this wonderful sense where in the covenant of redemption, what the Father does is He, he enters into a, a, an arrangement with His Son saying, Son, if you will, if you will stand in the stead, represent these fallen sinners in Adam, I give them to you as a gift. And the Son receives them from the Father and commits Himself to them in such a way that all whom the Father has given to Him will most effectually come to Him, and those whom the Father has given to Him, and those who come to Him, none will be lost. This is really just glorious when you think about it. Um, the Father gave you as a gift to the Son. Now it may be, you know, you know how when your kids are little, they're, hey, uh, mommy, here's a, a present for you, and it's an old smashed daisy, you know, or dandelion, right? And, uh, you know, that may be what the son felt like, you know, the father's like, here, and the son's like, yikes. But, <laughs> so because of the covenant of redemption then, what the son does is the Son comes into this world, right? Becomes flesh, becomes one of us. Word became flesh, dwelt among us. He becomes flesh. And then, as the last Adam, what does he do? That active and passive obedience, right? So when we talk about the active obedience of Christ, we're talking about His, his active fulfillment of the law of God on our behalf. So we saw yesterday or day before, whenever it was now, the, uh, the idea that you and I can't keep the law, we're under the curse of the law, and so Jesus in his active obedience fulfills the law perfectly for us, right? The only person to ever do that. And so then, that's the active obedience, but then there's the passive obedience. And when you think of passive, don't think of um, like passivity, think of the passion, right? That is, that is uh, Christ's suffering and death. So he actively obeys on our behalf, and then he suffers and dies to pay the full penalty for our sins. And so then the Son accomplishes the work of redemption, which has been planned by the Father, and then the Son gives the Spirit in order to apply the benefits of redemption to his elect. And so the Father plans it, the Son secures it, the Spirit applies it, and all of this flows out of the covenant of redemption. It is God's eternal plan, eternal purpose that comes to fruition in the new covenant itself. It's wonderful. It's really, it's glorious. And by the way, if you start paying attention, this, you'll start noticing everybody's driving a tundra, so to speak. When you start singing the hymns and the songs, 
you start picking up on these themes everywhere. So let us love and sing and wonder, right? All throughout that hymn, you have these themes of, of covenant. You have these themes of active and passive obedience. Uh, uh, come behold the wondrous mystery. The true and better Adam, right, fulfills the law. These themes are everywhere in Christian hymnody. You know why? Because this has been the predominant perspective of the Christian church for centuries. And it is wonderful. So that brings us to the new covenant. Now I have a fundamental assumption here, and that is that new means new. So the word new in Greek means new. <laughs> and by the way, that makes it better. By the way, new is not always better, but in this case, it most certainly is, alright? So I just want to just, just kind of run through this with you. So if you look at the Hebrews 8 passage, the writer to the Hebrews has told us in verse 6, okay, so, so think about us, we're... we're We've gone down the runway, now we're kind of taking off, okay? So all of this has been runway introduction, okay? So we get to the New Covenant, and what happens in, in Hebrews 8 is that the writer is making very clear that the establishment, he actually uses a, 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 a specific word, which means, in a sense, to establish by law, that is, or to legally enact. Right, the establishment of the new covenant is nothing less than that which was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So in verse 6, this, uh, so Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than what? The, the, the more excellent than the old. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly priesthood. Jesus is actually coming from the heavenly tabernacle and he has a priesthood that does not depend upon the physical descent of belonging to the sons of Aaron, but rather he is a part of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. By the way, that, that whole uh, theme is so important because if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you started to hear that Jesus was a priest... Right? You started to hear language like you have in Hebrews, you would have immediately objected, saying, only those who are in, from the tribe of Levi in the line of Aaron can be priests. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. By the way, the writer to the Hebrews completely acknowledges that right up front and says, of course he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Because his priesthood was not on the basis of his physical descent. His priesthood was on the basis of another priesthood, an eternal priesthood, that God himself had already established. And so Jesus has a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Now the writer to the Hebrews at this point is then going to move into, um, as it were, sort of a, an explanation as to why Jesus has a more excellent ministry and is the mediator of a better covenant. Because, verse 7, for, right, if the first, now that is not talking about the covenant of works, that's talking about the Mosaic covenant, if the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Now if you're familiar with Hebrews, you realize that this has been his very argument for Jesus' priesthood. If, if the Levitical priests could have made the people perfect, there would have been no need for the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the fact that there was another shows that the first was inferior somehow. Same thing goes now true with the covenant. There was a promise of a new covenant which actually indicates the inferiority of the previous covenant. But notice the way that he puts it. 
If that first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, was the Mosaic Law good? Yes. Was it, were its commands and statutes holy? Yes. In a sense, there is, there is nothing inherently wrong with the Mosaic Covenant itself except for this. It was a powerless covenant given to powerless people. Okay. So the commandments of God, for instance, are holy and just and good, but in and of themselves they don't have the power to do anything. They don't have the power to, to change me or to make me different or to make me obedient or to make me love God. And so the writer says, if the first one had been faultless, there'd have been no need for the second. But here's, here's the kicker, verse 8, for finding fault with them. So ultimately, who does the fault rest with? Well, the fault rests with disobedient, covenant-breaking people. That's who the fault ultimately rests with. And so, understand this. A powerless covenant given to people who have the propensity to continue to break it, what God does, understand, God could have said, in justice and righteousness, I'm going to just judge all of you and just leave you to uh, your own sin and the consequences of it and do nothing. But that's not what God does. God actually says, Behold, this is a quotation now from uh, Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I, will, when I will put into effect a new covenant. Notice this. Verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. You don't have to know Greek, you don't have to, you don't have to know exegetical method, you don't have to know anything to read that verse and make a simple conclusion. You know what that simple conclusion is? The new covenant is tell me. Okay, it's new. But yeah, it here's the simple truth. It's not like the other covenant. Which, by the way, again, raises a serious question of the idea of one substance, different administrations. Right? The new is not like the old. And so, the writer then goes, and he does this wonderful thing where he, he um, <laughs> in the quotation of Jeremiah 31, God leads them out of the land of Egypt, and, and, and then he... He makes this covenant with them and they don't continue in this covenant. And so then what the promise is, is that this, the covenant that I'm going to make with you is going to be better. And so what I want you to see is why the new covenant is better than the old. Alright? So notice the first thing. After those days, says the Lord... I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. So the first reason why the new covenant is better than the old covenant is because what God does is He writes His law on our hearts and our minds. Now you may say to yourself, well I thought you said that by virtue of the covenant of works and being made in the image of God, that we have the law of God implanted on our hearts. Well, that's true. That's what gives you a sense of, of moral direction. That's what uh, the, your conscience testifies against when you violate it, right? But here's the thing is that having the law of God implanted on our heart at creation is again powerless to do anything in us to transform us. The, the promise of the new covenant is this idea, Ezekiel 36, that God's going to take out hearts of stone and give in their place hearts of flesh, and then He's going to write His laws 
on that pliable heart of flesh. So there's, so there's, on the one hand, wonderful continuity, right? The law is written on our hearts, and so you have that sense again, the perpetuity of the moral law, but here's the glorious thing, is that the law in the New Covenant is written on our minds and our hearts, not just so that we know it, but so that we have new desires. When a person is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a fundamentally new direction and new desires in the heart because God has transformed that heart, made it a heart of flesh, put His law upon it in a new and a fresh way by His Spirit so that now, this is how I know I come to know Him. 1 John 2, 3, I keep His commandments. It doesn't mean I keep His commandments perfectly. It doesn't mean that I walk in perfect obedience. But what it means is that there is, a, there is a new desire in my heart to live a life that's pleasing to God. There is something in my, in, my, in my heart that makes me want to avoid the things of my old life. Things that I knew were displeasing to the Lord. Things that I knew that brought conviction. I want to stay away from I want to put off the old, put on the new. Why? Because I've got the law of God written upon my heart and my mind. What this means, by the way, is that the new covenant is better because it's internal, not merely external. And so, when you think about... Um, <laughs> by the way, if you were an ancient Israelite, you might not think of the law being written on your heart. You would think primarily the law being written where? Tablets of stone. Tablets. Tablets of stone right? And those tablets of stone are in the Ark of the Covenant. Those that are outside of you. And the reality is, is that it, in a sense it goes from being written on tablets of stone to being written on a fleshy heart. The very thing that was lacking under the Old Covenant becomes the reality in the New. And that is the efficacy of grace in the New Covenant is in fact through the Holy Spirit. So you could say it this way. The, new, the old covenant lacked power. The new covenant is empowerment. The new covenant is empowerment because of the Holy Spirit's role. You ever, you ever notice this in, in Romans? Romans 8, if you don't have, uh, if you're not already there, just listen. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Now that sounds kind of similar to what the writer to the Hebrews has already said, right? What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Right there, that verse all by itself is powerful, it's glorious, but notice there's a little so that. This is what we, what we would call a purpose clause. So God does for us in His Son what the law could not do, so that... You don't go to hell. Well, that's not what the, that's not what the text says. I mean, it's true, it's, so you don't go to hell, but God actually has a bigger plan than just keeping you out of hell. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, God does what He does in the New Covenant and gives us His Spirit so that we now walk according to the Spirit in the just requirements of the law. So just follow me just for a second. This is only a, a tiny rabbit trail, alright? So as a Christian, are you called upon to fulfill the law? No. I have a yes, I have a no. <laughs> okay, the answer is, okay, it depends on what you mean by fulfill, all right? Okay, so, so Paul says that we are to fulfill the law by 
<laughs> Those are all right answers. But he, Paul speaks explicitly, Romans 13, 8 to 10, Galatians 5, fulfilling the law by love. Love is the fulfillment of the law, right? How in the world does that work in the life of the Christian? And the answer is it only works by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. So as the Spirit of God works in me and the law of God is written upon my heart, new desires, new, uh, new desires for obedience, love for the brethren, all of these things. So the first two great commandments, love to God, love to neighbor, are being fulfilled. Again, not perfectly, but they are being fulfilled by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. So much so that the love of the brethren is evidence that I'm actually in the faith and have the Spirit. Now, that's wonderful, right? When you feel, um, when you feel weak, when you feel the challenge to love other Christians, when you feel the um, lack of desire to walk in obedience in some specific area, do you know what you can do? You can appeal to God on the basis of the new covenant. Appeal to God on the promises of the new covenant, which are already yours in Christ Jesus. Father, you have promised me that you would cause me to walk in your ways, Ezekiel 36, 27. You've promised that you would not only wash me and cleanse me and give me a new heart, but that you would cleanse me from my idols. You've promised that you would put your law on my heart. You promised that your spirit would be present in me. And so, Lord, because those things are true, now help me, empower me to love that person. Empower me to walk in this, to face this temptation and to overcome it through the Lord Jesus, right? And so the new covenant, because it is internal, it is empowerment by the spirit, it is the life-changing, life-transforming covenant that God has given to us. Now, there's also one other thing here that we should emphasize on the idea that it's internal versus just external, and that is that this, this new covenant grace is permanent and preserving grace. So, you know uh, Jeremiah 31 as a new covenant passage, but the new covenant continues in Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah 32, this is really such a wonderful text, Jeremiah 32 verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God, right, that's covenant language, right, so if he's just promised the new covenant and now comes back and reiterates one of the promises of the new covenant. I think that the connection ends up being there. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after me. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. So notice this. So here is here's again another new covenant passage and what does God say he's going to do? He's going to give us one heart, all right? And that that could be in a sense sort of collectively or corporately one heart or it could just simply mean sort of a single unified heart, right? Remember, one of our problems is having a divided heart. So in this promise, he gives, us, he gives us one heart, and notice what he does, one way, and then he puts his fear in us for our good, and he makes the covenant with us so that we will not turn away from him. And so this new covenant grace is the very grace that holds us fast all the way to the end. You know, when, when, when you look at the Old Covenant and you look at the waywardness of, of God's people, I mean, 
uh, ancient Israel was, was, was predominantly an apostate people, an apostatizing people, a rebellious people, people that were continually going. And I know that as Christians, we have, we have our own issues, we have our own sins, but the presence of the Holy Spirit means that we're working on these things, we're, we're pursuing sanctification, we're pursuing Christ, but here's the fundamental commitment that God gets to us in the New Covenant. I'm going to work in you in such a way that you don't turn away from me. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart of take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Now, I would just point you to, uh, there's so many places by the way in the confession that talk about God's preserving grace that come to us by virtue of the, uh, the, the covenant of grace. And so, how does God keep us? Well, in the New Covenant, He doesn't keep us by coercion or force. He keeps us by a new nature and a new heart. So out of curiosity, you don't need to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us have had this experience where, where we start to go wayward. And there's the, the appeal, there's the pull, the tug of the world and the flesh. And you start to kind of walk down that that path and there's something inside of you that simply says this is not the way that you should go this is not your way this is this is the prodigal son in the far country who comes to himself and thinks what am I doing here God's preserving grace, by the way, doesn't mean that He keeps us from sin and keeps us from, from being wayward. But what it means is that He will not neither let us finally nor fully fall, fall away. Notice next in uh, Hebrews 8, the new covenant is profoundly relational. You see this language, right? I will be their God. They shall be my people. This is, this is sort of one of the... One of the, 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 the common denominators in all the covenant language. And so there's this covenant relationship. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And then here, notice this. You see what it says? They shall all know me. Now, now notice, it, this is in verse 11. You're not going to have to teach your fellow citizen or your brother saying, know the Lord. That, that's a reference to the idea that under the old covenant, you had mediators... And those mediators helped you have the knowledge of God. Okay? So whether they were priests or even prophets, they actually helped you. They mediated God to you, as it were. The, the, the wonderful reality under the new covenant is because the mediator is the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Now, by virtue of being in that covenant, I now know God directly through Christ. And so who in this covenant knows God? Do you see it there? All of us. All of us. All of us. Now, in, in a wonderful sense, so God does give pastors and teachers, but let me just be really clear for my sake and for my brother John's sake. We are not your mediator between you and God. Okay? And in fact... Although we may teach the Bible to you and help you understand and know God better, we do not impart the knowledge of God to you. The Spirit of God has imparted the knowledge of God to you by virtue of simply being in the New Covenant. And so the, the, the minute that you believe, the minute that the Spirit opens your heart and your mind, you know what happens? You know God. You know God. And here's, here's the amazing thing. Everybody in the New Covenant knows God. Oh, by the way, there's a huge implication for that. I hope you see it, right? Under the Old Covenant, did everybody know God? Nope. Why? Because under the Old Covenant, all you needed for admission was circumcision, all right? So you had a lot of people that were in the covenant didn't know God. One of the reasons the new covenant's better than the old is because everybody that's truly in the covenant knows God. And so I mentioned to some of you, I was raised Catholic, and so I thought I knew God, and I was scared to death of God. 
I thought God was like a big policeman that was waiting for me to mess up and just knock the snot out of me, all right? And so I would go to confession all the time and, and uh, try to be good, but I was bad, okay? I was rotten. God saved me when I was 13 years old. And one of the very first thoughts that struck me was when I went to pray the Lord's Prayer, which I had prayed literally thousands of times. The Hail Mary tens of thousands. And when I said, Our Father, all of a sudden there was this amazing realization that our Father is my Father. And I know Him. Now, you're never going to exhaust knowing God. By the way, even in eternity, you're not going to exhaust knowing God. There's going to be an eternal increase of joy, which is going to be built on the fact that the finite will always be finite, the infinite will always be infinite, and you will be continually learning and discovering more things about God. And, and the way that I think the eternal state will work is something like this. Um, you know, some, some new discovery comes to you in the eternal state, something about God, and you're just blown away, and you're overwhelmed with, with praise and adoration, and so you're, you're Joshua, Joshua, i got to tell you what, and then Joshua says, that's awesome, let me tell you what I discovered today, right? And so you just have this, this eternal uh, discovery of the greatness and the glory and the infiniteness of God, Right? But the God that is incomprehensible in the New Covenant is knowable. Changes your life. They shall all know me. And so those in the Covenant know God. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me. Do you remember the text we read yesterday from Deuteronomy 29 where God says, To this day I have not given you a heart to know me. That was the problem with the Old Covenants. God didn't give them a heart to know them. In the New Covenant, everybody that's in it has a heart to know God. And then finally, verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the New Covenant promise is, is that in Christ we have the permanent forgiveness of sins. Okay. So, when, when Joshua read Hebrews 10, the fact that, that there was an annual Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, it actually was just a reminder of sins, right, that continually need to be forgiven. The glorious thing about the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus is that now our sins are forgiven once and for all. Merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins I shall not remember anymore. You know, there's a lot of precious gifts that God gives to us when we come to Christ. But being forgiven certainly is one of the most precious of God's mercies. It brings relief to your conscience. Right? Reading Pilgrim's Progress to our grandsons. And... Um, Papa, what's that big thing on Christian's back? It's his burden. It's his burden of sin. But let's keep reading. Because he's going to come to the cross. And that burden is going to roll away. And go right into that tomb. And be sealed up once and for all. This is... This is the glorious thing about knowing God and, and trusting in Christ is, is that when God looks at you, He doesn't say, you know what, um, I have a list of six things that I really want to talk to you about that you've offended me in. Now we know people like that, right? Every conversation, you know, they have a list somewhere that they're checking out. Okay, let's see, John did this, John did that, John did this. I need to make sure that I remind him of all the things that he did. This is how some marriages go, right? When, if you're in a marriage where every time you have an argument, you go back to 1987, you've got problems, okay? You know? Well, well if you remember when... God says, you know what, you're more rotten than you could ever know. There's the good news for you. You're more rotten than you could ever know, right? We, our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. I mean, who can know it? You are worse than you think. 
And the wonderful thing is that God, because of Christ, forgives us of all of our sins. And when he says, your sins, your iniquities, I'll remember no more. It's not as if the omniscient God is saying, I'm I, I can forget something. It's impossible for God to forget something. What he's saying is, I am never again going to bring up your sins as a point of contention between you and me. They're forgiven. And so Charles Wesley, by the way, I have a theory about Charles Wesley, and that is, although he professed to be an Arminian, he was a closet Calvinist. <laughs> Wesley writes this, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. Forgives us, pardons us. Our guilt has been removed. We've been washed and cleansed. Those who once, like Joshua the high priest in the book of Zechariah, are covered with the filth of our sin, we've been washed clean through the blood of Jesus. And because that blood is precious to the Father, you are precious to the Father, and He loves you, and He will love you all the way to the end. And so the glory and the blessing of the new covenant is that it is in fact the eternal covenant. It is the covenant of grace that comes to us through the gospel by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we enter into that covenant and He holds us fast all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the blessings of the new covenant. And Lord, we think especially of those that might be here, especially maybe some of the kids that have yet to know what it is to have peace with you through the blood of Jesus. Lord, we pray that even, even today you'd be working in the hearts of those that don't know you. And Father, we thank you that by your grace, free, sovereign grace, you have brought us into an eternal relationship with you that can never be broken. Receive our gratitude and our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.